Welcome to the Embrace It series, where women with all types of disabilities can be real, resourceful, and stylish. With each episode, you'll walk or roll away with everyday tips, life hacks, and success stories from community leaders and influencers. So take off your leg braces and stay a while with Lainey and Estella. Hi, I'm Lainey, and I have CMT. And I'm Estella, and I also have CMT a neuromuscular disorder affecting approximately 2.6 million people worldwide. That's as many as MS. We believe that disabilities should never get in the way of looking or feeling good. Both of us wear leg braces and have learned through our own personal journeys to embrace it. For more information and exclusive resources, check out our websites at trend-able.com and hnf-cure.org. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button for future episodes and special promos. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Embrace It. And today we have a fab guest um, that I just recently met. Estella brings us all these amazing guests because she's young and on Instagram and searching all the time. (laughs) And I I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm so busy doing, but I'm not. So Thank you, Estella, and welcome to the podcast, Hope Hoffman. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh. Well, we're so happy to have you. Hope is a disability advocate. She is really active in social media. She's a writer, and she grew up like within the political world and (laughs) and knows the ins and outs of it all. So um, we're wanting to talk today with Hope about her journey with her disability, and she'll tell us more about that, um, how, you know, important it is and what she's doing to help disability um, awareness and inclusion and all of that. So welcome, Hope, to the podcast. Hi. Welcome. Hi. Excited to be here. Little nervous, but oh no. yes, we're so intimidating. <laughs> I mean, Estella and I are like, yes. yeah. Please do not be intimidated. We are like, if you guys saw how we all look right now, <laughs> like, well, not all. Just Will you just start off by giving us a little bit of your background, what your condition is, and how it affects you maybe today? Um, Absolutely. So I I was born with spina bifida, which if if you're not aware, um, is actually, I'm I'm pretty sure the most common um, disability present at birth. Um, But just in my own lived experience is is, um, one of the most uh, unknown and underserved disabilities as well. And and the easiest way for me probably to describe that is um, I I have uh, weakness in my my lower legs that uh, caused me to wear leg braces um, for for most of my life Um, up until uh, like it's at two and a half years now. Um, I went through a medical malpractice situation uh, and lost the uh, the bottom half of of my right leg, which I I could do a whole other podcast on that. Wow, um, yeah, and uh, I'm still uh, in kind of the 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 throes of of dealing with that, um, and. I think the biggest takeaway I've had from that in in the last several years of of dealing with that is that, um, you know, so often we see with advocacy, it's it's you know um, the the perky side of advocacy and and the social media posts and the you know the TikToks now and, and the educational and not so much um, the peer oppression and abuse that happens. Um, 
And I, I've really had to spend a lot of time by myself the last, you know, 17 months to, you know, two years um, dealing with a lot of oppressive um, systems that are, are at their core ableist and, and um, realizing that there's such a lack of conversation around um, medical ableism and, and workplace ableism and educational ableism. Um, and it, it's hard to have discourse conversations around those when there's not even a mainstream um, conversation. Uh, that that kind of spiraled uh, not so much about my, my growing up, but really how, I, how I've gotten in where I am now. Um, it's, it's been a lot. It, it has been. Wow growing up with this diagnosis, uh, spina bifida. Can you tell us a little bit about your your journey of self-image, whether that was, you know, through your peers at school or, um, in, you know, your family dynamic and what pieces of that growing up kind of uh, brought you to this place where you are now as, a, as an adult? Yeah. Um, growing up, I, I think I, I knew that there was something different about me, um, but that really didn't hit hard up until maybe middle school or, or high school that I started struggling with that more, which is you know a, a prime time for struggle of, of young women anyway. Um, and so toppled on top of that, um, I, I, I went through, I, yeah, absolutely. I went through self-image issues and uh, it, it took... Um, many years into, you know, my, my early twenties now to realize that I was all consumed in, in how people were perceiving me, um, and not, not as, as much focused on how I perceived myself, um, which is low self-esteem at its core. Um, and, and it's hard when, when you grow up in an environment um, societally, um, that looks at disability as a deficiency and not just another characteristic of a human being. And so growing up with this, this subconscious and, and, you know, also conscious, um, you know, advertising everything that exists in society, um, I, yeah, I took a hit on me. Um, but I, I got to a point where I realized that, you know, it is what it is and I can either deal with it or I'm not going to deal with it. And um, I, I also had to take time to realize that I am truly in the first flux of, of young people with disabilities who have been fully included in K through 12 education um, because of the fact that, you know, in, in the seventies was, you know, a prominent time for institutionalization of people with disabilities, which is not even included in our history textbooks. And up until 1999, which was um, the, the Supreme court Olmstead decision uh, that allowed for people with disabilities to have community-based care and not be forced into institutions. Um, we were not predominantly in any aspect aspect of society. And, and really that kind of sobered my mentality of realizing that this work um, in paving the way for our demographic of people hasn't happened. I mean, what we're doing here right now, this is the first, you know, we haven't done this and, and we're kind of the, the trailblazers with, with all of this. And so it's not going to be easy and we shouldn't expect it to be easy. Wow. So you're so, um, I know this sound like, I hope this doesn't come off as condescending at all, but like, you're so wise. And so for someone so young, like what, you know, I mean, I don't know if I ever thought about, although I also grew up with a disability like yourself, it, you mm -hmm. know, it was inherited 
and I was born with it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I ever like gave real thought to inclusion or not inclusion. It just was what it was. You know what I mean? Like either I like I I excluded myself most of the time because I just didn't want to fail or look dumb or whatever, you know? And you, you know, chose a different path in terms of, you know, being like like learning everything you can about ableism and then also, you know, entering this disability advocacy world. Um, can you tell us like, how did you get into that? And what, like, what have you been working on um, as an advocate? It's so interesting when we, we have this conversation about advocate, because I, I don't think you ever really choose to be an advocate. I think that you have to be an advocate because it's, if you aren't advocating for the things that you need, then you're not going to be successful in life. Um, and so I've, I've had to self-advocate my entire life. Um, through school and into post-secondary and, and in every other aspect of life. Um, so when it comes to my, my true, true policy and advocacy, advocacy work that I've done. Um, so you had mentioned, I'm, I kind of grew up in a, a political environment. It, it is what I have to mention my dad, my dad's a state Senator in, in Minnesota. And so I grew up with that policy uh, framework and mentality. Um, and I began writing, um, legislation my 12th grade year in in high school. Um, My first bill that I had written uh, had to do with removing the term handicapped on on parking signs. Um, A lot of people don't know that the term handicapped comes from when war veterans would come back and they wouldn't be employed. And so they would have to bake on the streets with a cap handy in their hand, handicapped. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and it's not, that's not well known. I mean, our history isn't well known, you know, and, and that's why I've I've taken upon myself um, to really take the time to self educate and and learn these things. Um, so so that was kind of the beginning of of what I've done with legislation. Uh, post high school, I was appointed then to something called the Young Women's Cabinet in Minnesota, uh, which compromised of 25 young women uh, representing eight different marginalized communities, um, which really it was, uh, uh, there's a couple different cabinets ac- across the United States, but was started within the Obama administration, uh, pushing to end marginalization um, for young women uh, altogether. And, and with that, I, I really learned a lot about nonprofit and connecting with community um, and gained a lot of um, opportunities I wouldn't have had otherwise from that. I ended up doing a, a speech for the Women's March uh, in Minnesota, which was really cool to have, have a piece of my, my, my story shared through that. Um, and it led to uh, internship opportunities. I, I had worked with uh, our former governor Dayton in Minnesota, as well as a federal judge, um, which was really exciting opportunities. And then it was at the end of, of of my internships that I ended up going through my amputation, which was um, unfortunate that I that I couldn't you know spiral into the the, the career opportunities from that. Um, but it's it's something that uh, really I, I um, is the basis of of what has created uh, passion for me in 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 changing policy as far as uh, people with disabilities and and equal rights. Just the fact that at twelfth grade you're already writing bills is super impressive. And I'm curious, have you seen now looking back a few years, what's the impact or reaction been like politically? Has there 
been any changes implemented from the work that, that you've done so far? Are you optimistic about things starting to shift? It's it's really an uphill battle because of the fact that, I mean, we all know that disability is always put on the back burner and we're always an afterthought. And truthfully, if you know, I've I've seen that if you're not connected to disability, that that people don't really care. Um, from my first bill with the handicap sign, I, I was told by a legislator that, you know, wh- how much is this going to cost for a, a piece of metal, I believe was in a in a conference committee that I was in. And just the the ignorance of, of not understanding that, you know, it's not about it, the money, it's about the, the subliminal offense that that causes to people. Um, with the Young Women's Initiative, we ended up doing a blueprint um, that uh, was given to uh, the governor that highlighted, you know, different areas that we want to work for uh, in creating uh, uh, equality for, for all young women across the state. Um, but as far as disability, we have we have a long way to go. I, I'm uh, hoping to get out to D.C. sometime this summer. I uh, pre-pandemic, I had this idea uh, for a bill federally that would create um, a pre-check for mobility aids through TSA, um, because we all know that TSA is, is horrible when it comes to mobility aids and people with disabilities. And it coincides really well. I, I was reading something about uh, a piece of legislation that is trying to be pushed through um, that would hold uh, airlines accountable when they break mobility aids. And I think um, you, you guys might have even uh, shared that. And so I'm, I'm trying to connect that and see how doing like a pre-check on mobility aids so we wouldn't have to go be through these crazy pat-downs at airports. Um, and, and by the time this this podcast comes out, then I, that should be in the ball. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward and, and hoping that that can pass as well. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, so that's I'm, kind I'm, of... I'm literally. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry if I'm just ba- no, babbling on I'm about like too much. So, I'm super excited. I'm literally getting goosebumps as you like the minute you said TSA because I have been working with a few other advocates um, on some potential projects to bring awareness to the just absolute crisis that is happening right now with airlines damaging mobility aids. Like if you're in kind of like the network on social media of um, disability. Uh, influencers, you are seeing every day just post after post heartbreaking of these videos of, you know, just complete disregard for um, these mobility devices when 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 we're traveling and just the incredible impact that that has on an individual's life. And, and in one of the most recent ones, um, the woman was crying, you know, like, those are my legs. You, you literally have broken my legs and my independence my independence and it's not a piece of luggage right um and i think we absolutely need some some serious and swift um psa reform yeah absolutely it needs to be sweeping that's just one sector of this and that's that's the whole thing i mean when we're talking about systematic ableism and systematic systematic oppression, these are things that are deeply ingrained and, and are just, it's in the air that we breathe. And it's something that if you don't live it, you don't see it. And so, and, and it's also, I mean, this was something that we was touched on before, but, um, there's not a centralized movement when it comes to disability rights. And, and, and honestly, part of it is marketing. You know, when you think LGBTQ, it's pride and, and it's rainbows and, and Black Lives Matter has done a phenomenal job of, of building and, and galvanizing their base. We don't really have that by and for people living with disabilities. And truthfully, I think that's that's what's missing is that, you know, where's the reigning authority of, of holding people accountable? Do you think that it has to do with the fact that, I mean, 
disability is so big, right? And so many um, conditions, both physical, mental, they all fall under disability. Mm -hmm. You know, I almost feel like sometimes it's like, like when I write posts, I don't know if this is, you know, politically correct or not, I guess you'll tell me, but like, I often say physical, like mobility um, challenges or um, mobility related disabilities only because I don't feel like, I I feel like it's a lot different than having ADHD, you know what I mean? Or having bipolar, being Mm -hmm. obsessive compulsive, like that is a very different type of disability than having just like physical challenges. And, you know, we talk all the time about, um, you know, like my disabilities are mostly invisible, um, and by choice, they're invisible. I have that ability to make them invisible. Whereas a lot of people, obviously, with um, visible mobility devices don't. But my leg braces are underneath my clothing. Mm-hmm. My hands um, don't have uh, a, a real obvious deformity, although they don't function <laughs> correctly. Um, so you know, I pass and I I put, I use quotation marks, people. Um, I pass, right, as an able-bodied person. When you talk about someone's legs, like being hurt or destroyed, like on a plane, that's just heartbreaking. Like, I don't know. I mean, that's just, do you think that that's ableism or is that just like, because there's no training. There's no, there's a lack of knowledge of what people need and what people use. I think that we don't know what words to use or even what words we agree on because these conversations aren't happening, you know, until we, until we have people like you who are filling this void. And this is, these are the things that we need to build because really we're, we're so as a quote unquote community, we're so underdeveloped, you know, Mm -hmm. we don't have it established amongst each other. I mean, how do you create communities? You have an understanding with community and we need to create these community spaces in order to have those conversations, you know? Yeah. You're, you know what? You, I don't mean to cut you off, but you're 100% right. We don't have the conversation or the language. Like our last podcast guest um, that came on, it may not be out right now as you're listening to this, but it will yeah. be at some point. She, um, her disability is involving sight and hearing. And I don't remember what term, what term did I use, Estella? Impairment, vision impairment. I said vision impaired. And she very clearly said that is language that she doesn't like, or, I mean, she didn't say it offensively to me, but like, she doesn't use that language. Like visually impaired is not okay. It is Mm -hmm. not politically correct. And I am in the disability world and I had no idea that that's not okay. So like, it seems like it's like all over the place, even the word disability some people like, some people don't like. You Absolutely. Know? I, I have people who have taken on, well, I not have, I, I know people who have taken on uh, the term adaptability, which I, I mean, to be honest, I, I don't dislike. I think that the problem resides in like, we have to figure out what we're doing in order to communicate it to like the third person who has no clue about disability whatsoever. And at, at the end of the day, people get to and have the right to choose whatever words that they, they want to use. And I, but I think as, you know, going back to that that marketing and as a community um so like when you think of lgbtq plus um there's some people that are really offended by the word queer you know and there's some people who like that word um and it's almost like we need some sort of acronym or something something similar like that where it's like 
people can have disagreements about the words that they're choosing, but we don't have a definitive word. Does that even make sense? <laughs> no, it, it does. It does. I mean, I guess it's the intentions with the word, right? That matter yeah, the most. Yeah. And like when it comes from someone who's using language in a negative way or with a negative tone, that's when it becomes offensive. Like, you know, my daughter's gay. She dislikes the word lesbian or she, or they used to. And now it's like, I hear her, I hear them using the word lesbian. Like, so Mm -hmm. it's confusing and people, you know, just like, um, you know, I mean, you're young, like people change, (laughs) they change how they want to be called what they want to be seen. In your twenties, you change every six months. I mean, it's like, right. And, but I think that's, why we shouldn't get so stuck either. I mean, I, I'm not a fan of the term handicap because I know the history. Um, but there was a point in time where like, that was the word that was predominantly used. And now we've kind of, we've switched to disabled or disability. And in 20 years, that might change. I mean, that's the evolution of linguistics. But I, I think as words change, we have, part of it too, is, is the inherent, um, the inherent ableism of, of using disability as an insult. And I think that we, we, we have to switch our words or in history we've needed, we've wanted to switch our words because they then become insults, you know? And I, and I think the core of that is, is how do we educate and get people to care about us as equal human beings? That's the problem. It doesn't matter what the word is. You know, the words become bad when people start using them in bad ways. Absolutely. And the knowledge, I mean, like you just telling me for the first time hearing what the actual meaning of the word handicap is mm-hmm. makes me never want to use that word. Not that I used it you know, but I certainly say handicap sticker because it, like here in the U S that's what you call it. Right. Like mm-hmm. that's what it's been referred to, but I won't anymore because now I know that I don't like that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but that was you who just taught me that in two seconds. So for those who are listening out there, like, tell us more, like, what are some, like, what are, like, what can people do? They don't want to necessarily do a big thing like you're doing. They're not involved with politics on a bigger level. They don't necessarily, you know, um, want to be creating bills and writing legislation. What can they do on a smaller scale with just the people in their lives? I think the best thing that we can do, um, together is to connect. And that's why I think that networking and, and even just coming across your platform and connecting, um, and having these conversations is, is the most important thing that you can do. And so I think plugging in to the conversations and plugging into, um, you know, where, where the platforms are and, um, you know, take, taking inventory of, you know, what, what work is being done, what, where the holes are in that work and what work isn't being done and, and plug into what you want to see changed. I think you raise uh, some great points, which is why we are not are trying not to silo ourselves into just CMT on this podcast, because these conversations across the disability spectrum are so important in order for us to create real change, right? Because a lot of times I feel like we compartmentalize ourselves and this is CMT, this is this, this is that. And then, you know, we're all experiencing a lot of the same challenges and barriers, um, but we're so much more powerful when we connect and organize and strategize, which I think is a lot of the work that you're doing. Um, Trying. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, no, but that's that's all that we can do. I mean, we are trying in our own ways with what we have in the moment, um, you know, add it to our own experience, which is what drives our passion for this work. 
and the change. Um, I know you work a lot with discrimination in the workplace and you've uh, personally experienced some of that. I think that's something that a lot of our listeners can relate to on some level. Can you kind of give us a little bit of an overview of of what you've experienced and how you navigated through that? Yeah, it's actually my my first time kind of just giving a a short synopsis of of what happened. It's something that I've been going through the past year and a half. So this is kind of like a a little bit of getting my mojo back and and talking with you guys here. But basically, um, post my amputation, like I not the best time in my life. And I I was excited to start a new job. Um, And I'll and I'll just keep that concealed because I mean, it's it'll be public information, but I'm not trying to give away names or anything. Um, But I I started a job and, and for the most part, things were able to be, you know, accommodated without going through a formal process. Which, to be honest, prior to you know working this first big girl job of mine, uh, I didn't even know that an interactive process was required necessarily for accommodation. I thought accommodation was just a request under you know the Americans with Disabilities Act, and it was either you know confirmed or denied based on you know money and resources. But you know it, it was good for for a minute, and then basically what had happened was I was scheduled, assigned um, to go to a venue that had just a ridiculous amount of parking or a ridiculous amount of walking and not enough um, disability parking. And so I ended up having to to park blocks away. And and the event just was a a total flop because of the fact that my disability wasn't taken into consideration. Um, Had emailed the the people above me, my superiors saying, hey, you know, in the future, can you guys just give me a heads up about parking and walking so that if it's too much, we can work it amongst the staff to, because it was flexible to have different, you know, staff do different things. And uh, after that, I had a meeting with my manager. They they had said that I could, uh, you know, basically when I was requesting for that accommodation, they weren't understanding that that was a request for accommodation. And that's based on a lack of training. Um and, and people with disabilities in the workplace in general. But they told me that I could instead Google Earth to see if a venue in the future would have um, <laughs> disability parking or not, which one, that's not, you can't even do that until I, I, it's not my job to fulfill my, my own reasonable accommodation. And basically post um, that request that was then ignored, um, I, I experienced just a retaliatory uh, behavior. It just, the, the way that my superiors were treating me um, was terrible post that, um, that request. They had told me that uh, I would have someone sit in on meetings that I was assigned to, to make sure I was, quote, able to do the work. I was asked to push AV equipment and uh, clear really heavy dishware sets that they knew that I couldn't. And basically they were trying to, to set me up to, to fail. Post that, uh, made a complaint to the HR department where I was working because I, I couldn't physically keep up with the tasks that they were setting me up to fail to do. And nor were they as substantive, you know, as they were before, or they weren't as substantive as, you know, my peers who, who were working in the same job. <clears throat> So these, so these things that they were asking you to do, just to clarify, because they weren't in your job description, like they weren't you, Correct. Yeah. I was basically, so I, w- I was employed as, as a higher level employee and I was basically being treated as a glorified intern. And I think part of that problem too, is the fact that people with disabilities oftentimes don't make it past an intern or, you know, temp 
level because of intrinsic ableism, bias, and labeling, um, and plain discrimination. And so that's what I was viewed as, or I was viewed as, you know, the paper pusher or the picker upper, um, because that's, I mean, and that's, and I'll get to it, but, um, it, that this whole situation made me realize that there's such a bigger problem with ableism and how I was viewed as a human being and what my plate, my quote place was there. Um, and it, it, it just was, it, it opened my eyes to a bigger systematic issue, but <clears throat> where I was going with that is I, I, I filed my, the complaint with HR. They, um, uh, they basically came back and said that, you know, it, it wasn't in their view discrimination. Um, but in the time of filing with HR, I, I had a happenstance, um, meeting with someone who also happened to be the, the ADA coordinator um, at the job, even though they didn't live with disabilities themselves, which I think inherently is an, kind of an oppressive dynamic to have someone without disabilities being the decision the de- decision maker for Absolutely. someone without disabilities. Um, and they had told me that, in order, so, oh, go through this interactive process to, to, for someone to give me a heads up about parking. And I'm like, I'm not giving you my entire lengthy medical background um, for something that, like, if, I, if you had a pregnant employee or an older employee, like, it, or just anybody, it's like, it's, and they had no concept of the fact that there's so many more complex disabilities. And, and I listened briefly to your podcast with um, Ashley, I think, too, um, right, that, uh, that would require, you know, building modifications or equipment and, like, bigger things, you know, and it's like, if I can't even get something small as a heads up here, how the heck is anybody else with a disability going to possibly work here or anywhere else like here? Um, and so that, that was the situation. And then what had been the kicker for me is, as at the end of my meeting with that ADA coordinator, I had dropped my bag or something and I kind of made a sigh or something. And they had said to my face, Oh, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm handicapped by the end of the week too. And oh I, wow! Yeah, wow. I I was so shocked and mortified in that moment that someone who was supposed to be the person that you know you think I I would go to and would have some sort of a frame of reference and yeah. I I'm used to people saying like you just said handicap tag or handicap park and I, and I usually let that roll unless it's a situation of like hey did you know you know this is what that word means um, but the way that they were saying that is like they were comparing you know their exhaustion to like. Yeah losing a limb. And that was where it was just completely ableist, discriminatory. And I think I actually resigned the next day. Um, and so then I post that I was in, it was a year and a half of back and forth with very uneducated, um, ableist people who just didn't get it and didn't want to take accountability. And it's, it's not an isolated event either. You know, there's, I've had since this people, um, reach out to me or or try to get information or confide. And it's like, I don't even have the answers. I'm just someone who went through this, who's now seeing a bigger systematic problem. Um, and has a lot of insight on, on the systematic ableism that exists in our workplace, you know, and, and the fact that there's not, um, there's not a formidable 
middle class of people with disabilities working just regular jobs, regular office jobs, the bank teller, you know, the um, what the uh, mail person, who whatever regular jobs are, we we really only see people with disabilities nowadays either super successful as like a model or an athlete or an influencer, and of course everyone to an extent wants that a little bit. Um, or on the on the opposite set, opposite end, we have people who are are working in sheltered workshops and making minimum or sub minimum wage, um, which is being paid less than minimum wage, which is still something that's legal in the United States. Um, and we have people who are are unemployed and even unsheltered. I mean, there's not like this middle room of where just. And and that would be true disability justice, I think, in my opinion, is where's the this gray room of we are normal people working normal jobs in society. And I think that that's a, a big part of the problem of what I face is we don't exist in that way. Right. Or or we exist. And a lot of times they're not, they're silent. They're just, you know, like people or, who have, you know, MS, for example, or uh, lupus, they're, they're not necessarily telling their coworkers mm-hmm. or their bosses or anyone because they see the environment and the ignorance around them and don't feel safe or comfortable because look, you asked for something so simple and look at what happened. It's like, you know, and they're not given the opportunities to apply to those jobs. So a lot of times, you know, these, like you said, these executive, I remember when I was looking for a job, a full-time job before H and F, obviously I was still, um, I was volunteering for a a long time, but in in the meantime, I was looking for full-time work. And a lot of these, you know, these job ads say, okay, these are your administrative tasks and um, requirements, and then must be able to lift 20 pounds, like in a little sidebar, mm-hmm. just not to be officially discriminatory, but that in, in and of itself is like, well, what the hell, you know, that's not what I, why does that have to be part of the, the job requirement? Um, and then that, that really scares a lot of people off from applying to those positions. You know, the companies are like, you know, like you mentioned, the culture is not inclusive. There's no talk about accessibility or flexibility, whether that's, uh, you know, working from home partially, obviously now. Um, yeah, it's amazing when everybody needs it. That, yeah. that well, And that's the ableism is like, it's really not hard to to figure out remote work when people without disabilities need it, you know, and, yeah. and that's, that's a point we need to keep pushing. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think we've mentioned this before, just, you know, obviously COVID has been such a such a, a, a rough ride to say the least, but at least, you know, the silver lining is that it has opened some eyes to the need for, you know, flexibility, uh, remote work that, you know, people that are experiencing post COVID symptoms now, which are putting them into that disability group, um, unfortunately. So it's, um, I think it has opened some eyes. You had just mentioned about the, the 20 pounds with the box and what I, I didn't know that I had learned throughout this process of discrimination and through, you know, my attorneys is that that's something that would not be considered an essential job function, you know, and, that's what employers are not understanding about the Americans with Disabilities Act, or if perhaps, in my opinion, there's a lot that needs to be re- rewritten about the, the ADA 
I think we should use mandate a lot more because that means you have to. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But not understanding that if it's not an essential job function, i.e. meaning that it's not the purpose and primary role of the job, if you have a disability, you should not, it's not you should, legally you are not required to do it. And and that that statement just reminded me, I, I had in my notes here that um, I, there's, there's a, an executive order, executive order one, three, one, six, four, that I had found that my attorneys hadn't even brought up. And, and clearly the, um, my uh, employer had no clue of, um, and basically it outlines, um, the parameters of, of how to set up the, the process of, of reasonable accommodation and what it's, um, the guidance is on the EEOC is that, Um, when a disability or need for accommodation is not obvious, the agency may, if it chooses, require that an individual provide reasonable documentation about the disability or his or her functional limitations. And the the interesting thing about that statement is that, so by law, if your disability is visible or is factually known by your employer, this whole paperwork request process legally should not be happening. The whole point of this this reasonable accommodation interactive process is if the dis if the if the disability is not known and you need to have a better understanding of why it would be needed. So in my situation where it was it's visible in my in the way that I walk that I have walking limitations and B, it was known, you know, that I what I live with and people and my coworkers and, and everything people were aware that my request should have been granted if it wasn't financially burdensome or it didn't it didn't um, consume too many resources. And for the fact that it wasn't met is is ableist and discriminatory and and frankly against the law. And that's the thing we're not enforcing the law. This is this is I'm reading from the EEOC, and we have employers and lawyers who aren't reading this. <laughs> In addition to them not meeting like a simple thing that you're requesting. Um, what is heartbreaking to me, uh, you know, is like when they're sitting next to you, watching you for everyday things that you're doing with work, it's like when someone, you know, a doctor, for example, um, you know, is with someone with disabilities in a room and they're, they brought a friend and the doctor's talking to the friend and not to that person as if that person doesn't have the mental capacity to hear what is being said about themselves. It's like they were treating you like your physical, you know, limitations and and challenges, your walking affected your brain, affected every aspect of you that that is it, it's ridiculous and it is ableist and it's and what is is it's it's amazing. What does that say about how we view and treat people with cognitive disabilities? Right. You know? It's 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 so multi-layered, and there's so many like conversations like this that have to decompose, you know, deconstruct these things that haven't happened. Um, it's a first, you know, because these yeah. these things have to be talked about and addressed. Yeah. So, what is the biggest lesson that you would want listeners to be able to take away from your experience? I I think that I I. I've, this is something that I've I've said quite often that disability we we've we've even used it in our language here of, of group or community. It, it's not 
necessarily just a a group or a community. Um, it's on a spectrum and it's not a community thing. It's, it's an everybody thing. It's something that, uh, is going to happen to every person at some point in life. And it's something that we need to accept and embrace, <laughs> embrace it. Um, <laughs> yeah. it. All right, we're done here. We can go. Okay. <laughs> thank, you for, thank you for the help. <laughs> you know what? You're, you're that point that you just said is in fact the problem is, you know, people don't tend to react or um, be want knowledge, want information, unless it's affecting them and or affects someone in their lives. Right. And as you just said, everyone at some point, you know, like, you know, anybody at any time could be, you know, uh, disabled or, or, you know, have challenges of their own, um, they don't want to think about it. They don't yeah. want, I mean, they, and it's, why is that it's too? like, I mean, it's the intrinsic belief that, I mean, and it's, it's, and it's based on an internal ableism and, and we, as people with disabilities have it too. And it's something that I think about often, why do we view disability as a bad thing or as a tragedy, a tragedy? You know, I've, I've really had to do a lot of self reflection on, on, on that and, and realizing that disability for me is it's, it's a, natural part of life. And it doesn't have to be a tragedy if if we don't put it in that viewpoint. And the reason why people view us as lesser and don't care is because we are everything that people are trying to avoid mm-hmm. and don't want. Yeah. It's not considered part of the human experience. It's part, it's, it's, that's the word it's something for. that yes. happens to other people. And I think in my own yeah, personal other life, people, it's other, yes, it's, it's other, other people. Oh, that, that those people. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, something interesting that I've kind of opened my eyes to, things that we don't consider as disability, like, for example, a friend of mine recently experienced a double mastectomy, right? And she was talking to me about just the the trauma of being incapacitated for a few weeks and not being able to use her arms and her hands and, you know, like not be able to physically function in the way that she's used to. And I think that that also falls under this umbrella of disability because we think of it as this like life sentence or we don't think of it as like oh somebody pulled their back and now they're in excruciating pain for two years that's disability too we don't think of arthritis and that's the spectrum you know everything exists on a spectrum now when are when are we going to get to a place of of understanding that it's (laughs) it's disability is a human experience that exists on a spectrum the good news is that you are seeing um more and more you know, people with disabilities represented in mainstream world more than ever before. I mean, to go to Sephora and Ulta and see now, granted, they're beautiful, aesthetically beautiful women <laughs> that are up there. So maybe that needs to change too, because they, you know, they're, they're all- Well, ableism like is, is closely tied to misogyny and that's, right. a, that we can talk about that another time. <laughs> right. Well, the pretty disabled person has yeah. an easier time, right? I mean, just like the pretty non-disabled person has an easier time in life because that's rewarded. I was thinking as a side note about you and like your dad, who obviously is very enmeshed in politics and the picture of the political family, you know, (laughs) and like you broke that stereotype for your state. You know, I don't know how much you were involved in his marketing campaigns, but like, 
if people know about your family, that's an example. That's how these get broken. It's like here, if they actually hear your voice and hear how bright you are and how insightful and interesting and cool and all of that, it's like, I can relate to that. Right. It's, it's, it's the stigma. It's the stigma breaking through representation. But I think that's just, uh, that's scratching the surface is the representation because a lot of a lot of people like check the box. Oh, we got, you know, a girl in a wheelchair in our showroom window on a big poster check. We're officially inclusive. No, but what about the makeup artist with a disability who's being turned away from a job? What about all the people internally behind the scenes? That It's very advertising based. Yeah, see, and I think that's where the importance of the work that you are doing is it's holding these companies accountable and shining a light on what uh, discrimination looks like, right? And and sharing your story so that other people who are experiencing similar circumstances take a second look and and like, oh, wait, that actually was discrimination that happened with my last employer. Uh, you know, I I need to speak up. I need to do a little bit of my homework and and hold hold them accountable. So I think that's the next step, right? The first step is representation, um, getting our foot in the door, so to speak, and then you know then making people aware and educated on what the law is, what our rights are, and, and moving that needle forward. Basically, we're starting from square one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no and pressure. With, yeah, I mean, that, I, I think I touched on this slightly, but the reality is, is that, you know, in full, we haven't existed in society, you know, truthfully up until the last 20 years. And so people in their 20s and 30s were the first flux of people with disabilities to be, you know, to as much as, you know, we, we face a lot of discrimination still, but to be um, quote unquote, fully integrated into society. And so again, this is work. We have a lot of work that still needs to be done. This is, you know, we are, it's by no, like what you were saying, the check mark of, oh, we have the one person in the wheelchair. Yay. That's, you know, in, it's inclusive. No. And it's, that's understanding that disability is more than just a wheelchair too. And, um, and that comes a lot from, you know, the, the parking signs that have the wheelchair, like, is that really inclusive of all disabilities? And, you know, then people think it's just like, oh, I have a ramp, so I'm inclusive. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. But I think that even though the intention may just be to sell makeup and like to put on the, you know, we're being politically correct kind of hat and we're, look at us, we're, we're an innovative, progressive company that may be the intention, obviously marketing wise, but for the average people, I think it's a step in the right direction because oh, the absolutely. More, you, more you see people with limb differences, with, you know, prosthetic devices, like then it becomes common. Like it's something it, people are scared of the unknown. Right. Yes. And the more you put it in people's faces and, and the more that those people see themselves at like that person. So it's not just, Oh, that person has, you know, limb differences. It's like that person could be me. Mm-hmm. Like that person. Oh, we went to the same college. Oh, look, it's people. It's the pity part that we need to get rid of. And the pity part also implies a lack of intelligence on the person with disabilities part. Like, you know, you are putting yourself higher than that person. And so when we can like do everything we can to get people on the same level, then we're good. So, 
Yeah, this is like, wow, I feel like I'm using my brain a little bit today. (laughs) We're not talking makeup. We're not talking shoes for AFOs. We're like, my brain hasn't worked in over a year. We're diving deep. I told told Lainey, I I warned her this was going to be a spicy one. So I Yeah, she's spicy. Spicy. Yes. So this is going to be a spicy one. I love talking about shoes and makeup, though, just so we're good. That's all. That's what we do. So you'll have to come on again for that segment. Um, but before we like tell people how to find you, what are some of the projects and things that you're working on right now that you're looking forward to? Well, I had referenced that we we kind of hit it earlier the the legislation that I'm I'm looking to do federally, but um, I'm hoping I with my Instagram I've I've it's been a good outlet for me to do you know poetry and just a, a different writings. I'm hoping to have a, some form of writing published by the end of this year. Um, at some point, I'd I'd love to do an autobiography and a couple of different novel ideas I have, but that's it, that's a little farther off with some stuff I still have going on. Um, but yeah, focusing on on the TSA. Uh, legislation this summer for sure and there, there's a bigger project that I kind of hinted at uh, to Stella at that I'll, I'll drag you guys into but I, I have to wait for a couple a couple of things to be concluded but uh, I'm thinking something pretty pretty big but we'll have to stay tuned Ooh, exciting. <laughs> I love it so exciting I don't think we will be dis- disappointed in, in any way, shape or form. And I just, you know, just want to echo that we are just super honored to have you joining us today, that we're just super impressed and inspired um, in the best way possible by the work that you're doing and the way that you have navigated, um, you know, just the, the stigmas and challenges of, of the mainstream corporate world and um, all of the legislation that you are working on to push to make changes for others so yeah you go girl where can we yeah. find you where can people find you if they want to follow you if they want to see what you're doing I'm, I'm really only doing insta right now so that's at underscore the hope theory underscore um by the time this is out I, I'm kind of revamping my twitter and that's under the same handle so either instagram or twitter and then when when anything's kind of announced that'll be on my instagram for sure awesome yeah. well, well thank sharing. you so much hope Thank Thank you. you. It's been so great having you on. I can't wait to see what you're doing in that big project. So um, keep us posted. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.